church. Good morning, good morning, good morning. If you've got your Bibles, if you could open them up to the book of Mark, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. So if you've got a Bible, if you want a physical Bible, we've got some in the back. If you don't own a physical Bible, steal it, snag it, we don't care. Um, If you have your phone, you have a phone app, feel free to go to Mark 11. We're going to be hanging out in the first 18 verses of that. And if you've ever gone to church on Palm Sunday, this is so what you've always heard but radically different. Uh, there's some things in this passage that even up until studying it for, for this weekend, I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I don't know if, I've, I, don't know if I've, I saw that before, but it's really, really cool as we kind of do an archaeological dig through a couple of layers. Uh, as you're turning to Mark chapter 11, um, the thing that we have to keep in mind that this passage is just revolving around bold moves that Jesus makes. And everyone here, you've made bold moves in your life, or at least the things that were noteworthy or worth thinking about in your past were bold moves. Bold moves like if you uh, tried out for a team, you didn't think that you were athletic enough, but you, you got on the team or you didn't. That was a bold move. And to this day, you're either like, it's a victorious moment or it's a scar, but it's there. Uh, for some of us here, uh, a bold move was, was taking a job or, 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 or asking someone out or you know, saying yes uh, to, to a marriage proposal or, or traveling or moving or any one of these things. These are bold moves and they change everything. And when you look back on your past, you don't think about the safe stuff. You don't think about the things that were like, oh yeah, you know what? I could choose this or I could choose this. It doesn't really matter. Those decisions really are forgotten in history. The things that stand out are the bold moves. And my life, I mean, there've been some bold moves that have just been defining. The purpose of a bold move that, that if it's intentional, more than just making a decision for your personal life. If it's intentional, an intentionally bold move, the purpose is to affect change. Um, this is a picture of myself at Ed DeBevick's in junior high. That's me. There's my brother Josh. And that is Melissa Langley. I've had one love in my life, and that's Julie McFadden. But if there was like a queen of the crush before I knew what love was, that was Melissa Langley. Melissa Langley lived in Whittier, California, and I so, so desperately wanted to date Melissa. I so wanted her to think that I was something special, but I realized that when she looked at me, she did not see what I saw in her. And so I had to do something bold to actually affect some type of a change. And, and throughout the course of the saga, and we could, talk, we could be here for three hours of me telling you from junior high through high school, the saga of pursuing the attention of Melissa Langley. Outside of that, like, I mean, I, I, seriously, I, I sent her letters um, where like, um, and a letter, if you're you know, south of 21 years old, it was like this thing where you sent information through a system where they, you put a stamp, it was crazy. But I would draw all over the envelope so when she got it, she'd go, <sighs> and I mean, I remember at a camp that our churches, she went, went to Whittier First Baptist, I went to Torrance First Baptist, we went to the same camp. I like raced um, one of my friends up a 75-foot pine tree to get to the top just so that she would like me and not my friend. Did not work. Uh, She went out with him that weekend. But regardless, back in the start of the Melissa Langley saga of me just crushing on Melissa and wishing desperately that she would be able to like me too, I remember one of the the boldest things I ever did was I knew that her church was going to be coming to Torrance to go to Wilson Park. Wilson Park wasn't special. It was just a park in the middle of Torrance, the middle of town. And it was a place where our church was having kind of like their annual picnic deal. And Whittier First Baptist was coming too. So I knew. This had to be the moment where she saw something, and I did something bold that would help her say, I will never, ever forget this. And that, I was successful at. 
I had just started skateboarding, and I was like, okay, I'm going to, I don't know any tricks, but I'm going to do something, and I'm like just going through my head, and I'm like, wait a minute, this is, this is Wilson Park, Wilson Park. Wilson Park is a place that has a hill, and the hill has got a particular name, and the name is Suicide Hill. Suicide Hill at Wilson Park is this hill that is like, and if you go down it on rollerblades or skateboards, it's just insane. And I never had, but today would be the day. And I was going to wait for Melissa to get out of her car, her parents, and I would get my buddy Victor Gamboa to go over and like coax her, just like, like start talking with her to try to get her over to the base of the hill, right where the maximum velocity would be so that she could look at me doing something insane and say, that is the type of man I want to spend the rest of my life with. And it's so like, that is the type of 13-year-old I want to spend the rest of my life with. And so I'm, I'm standing there. I'm waiting for Victor to give me the high sign that, that, that she actually was there because everyone was so small, like little ants. Victor's down there. He's like. And I just took a deep breath. I've got my skateboard. I put it down. I just look up to the heavens and I say, Lord, this is your will. And I started down. And I go down, just like flying down this. And if you've ever skateboarded across like um, concrete, it makes a sound. Just go, chukuk. Whenever you hit like a break in the concrete, and as you go faster, it starts going faster and faster. Now the thing is that I didn't realize, I didn't process the fact that the concrete wasn't smooth concrete, it was like pebbled. And so it's like all of a sudden it's like, and all of a sudden everything is like shaking. And I'm like, and my brain is like starting to hurt, hurt. When your brain hurts, not good. And I'm like, my brain is starting, and I'm like, and I'm going super fast. I'm like, and my my. The skateboard itself is having a difficult time standing. I'm like, come on, don't, don't fall apart. I look at Victor and his head's doing this. And I look down at Melissa and she's like, I'm like, yes. And I'm going down and I'm going fast as I can. And all of a sudden I see about 20 yards ahead of me, the concrete breaks. It's like this. And then all of a sudden at the division, it's not just like a, a division like this where there's a little bit of a gap. It's like this big of a gap. It's like four inches up. And I realize this is why they call it Suicide Hill. And in that moment, I realized I know what I have to do. I have to do an ollie. I have to like, and that will blow her mind. But then I realized I don't know how to do an ollie. So I just was like, maybe I'm going so fast that the front tire, if I just raise up a little bit, if I raise like this, and then the front tire will like hit it or maybe just skim it and I'll keep on going. And that's what happened. Minus the part where my skateboard was with me. Because I hit that and my skateboard stayed stationary and I flew. And all of a sudden through the air, 13-year-old arrow, <laughs> flying past my brother. And that's the look that he has. <laughs> flying past Melissa Langley. And she's like, <laughs> and I hit, and I slide on my elbow like 15 feet on that coarse, gravelly concrete and just scrape off my elbow. <laughs> right in front of Melissa Langley. Bold move. But who was it that put a Band-Aid on my elbow? My brother Josh. So <laughs> with Jesus, the bold moves that he's doing are, are similar because he's affecting change. He wants to do something. And even in the text, it says this. The whole, all the disciples saw it. This is what he said. This is what he did. And everybody saw it. He was laying down a mental tattoo that they would never be able to forget. So this would be something that forever they would look back on. The book of Mark is written by Mark, but it was dictated by Peter, an eyewitness. And so Mark is actually coming at this going, 
I'm, I'm hearing this from Peter, but this is kind of crazy. Some of the things that Jesus did. And some of the stuff in this passage are bananas. If somebody did this, you would say they are either out of their mind or they're a genius. Because what they're doing is so bold a move. His point is that if you want hope, the truest hope is not wishful thinking. The deepest hope is not what you can pull across or pull off on your own. The deepest hope is a living hope that's only found in him. And his three bold moves that we're going to be talking about today as he comes into the triumphal entry into Jerusalem are exactly that. The first bold move uh, that we see is Jesus challenging the political hope. And so if you've got your Bibles, let's take a look at the beginning of this chapter. Chapter 11, as they approach Jerusalem, now just think about this, by the way. This is Jerusalem down here. This is where the Temple Mount is. You go down to the Kidron Valley and you go up the Mount of Olives. And right up here, right over the top, there's Bethany and Bethpage. Over here, that's where some of Jesus' friends lived. So they hang out there. When they come down from Galilee, they hang out in Bethany and Bethpage. If they want to go down the city, they go down this alleyway, this really narrow street, not much wider than this. And that's where they're at right now. As they approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethany and Bethpage at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. Just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied up there, with no one, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. They went, found a colt outside in the street, tied it at a doorway. And they, as they untied it, some people asked, standing there asked, what are you doing, untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. Verse 7, when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the, on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, which means rescue me or save me. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. The thing that Jesus is doing here is amazingly profound. He's actually, he, he's, he's challenging the political hope that the people had. The people back then loved Jesus. They were stoked about Jesus just like us, and sometimes for the very same reasons. What can Jesus do for me? This, this is, we're, we're in the 30s in, in, the, in, in AD. We don't, we're not even making that our calendar, but this is the 30s, and life is really messed up. We have lots of issues. We're in the Roman occupation, and we have a whole lot of needs. And we need someone who can save, not our future, we need someone who could save our now. We need Jesus to, to rescue us. Hosanna, he's the one. And yet, Jesus does something to prophetically challenge and prophetically mock a shallow political hope that they were looking to, for him to fulfill. And he's doing it prophetically right out of Zechariah. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Zion's another name for, for Jerusalem. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having what? Salvation. And another word for salvation is rescue. Okay, salvation could sometimes, we can pigeonhole it into a very Christian word, which is appropriate. But, but what it means is rescue. And they're saying this. Prophet Zechariah is saying, be encouraged, Jerusalem, because guess who's coming? Your rescuer. You have a rescuer coming. You should, you know, no matter how garbagey it is now, how bad it is now, a rescuer is coming. A warrior is coming. Someone that you could depend on. Someone who could come in and, and just take, you know, he could, he could come into the situation and clean the floor. With this is who you should be expecting. And yet, listen to the flip side of Zechariah's prophecy. Because it goes from sounding like we're proclaiming Rambo is coming to someone radically different. 
to you. He's righteous and having salvation, rescue. Gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. All right, so here's the two simultaneously contradictory pictures that we're seeing here. You have, first off, the palm branches. How many, uh, how many of you were waving palm branches in the service? Can you just raise that palm? I see that palm. Okay, good. All right, how many felt super awkward? Yes, I see. Okay, good. All right, hands down. Now, here's the thing. This was something that was not just a, hey, looks like something good to wave. Yay, Jesus is coming. This was a political statement. The, the palm branch was something that, that basically people would cut off and they would say, just like in the midst of our arid Mediterranean environment, this is a sign of life. You are a sign of life. You who we are proclaiming are a sign of life. We are in a messed up situation. And you know what? We have enemies all around us. But we're not putting our trust and our livelihood in them. We're putting our trust and livelihood in you. We trust you to be the warrior, just like Zechariah said, who's going to come in and win. And you know what? We need that right now because we're under Roman occupation. We need a rescuer. We need, we need a gallant person who's going to ride in here on a steed and let everyone know, I've got a sword and I know how to use it. And yet, Jesus does not, when people are doing this, he, doesn't, he does not confront them. He doesn't say, what are you doing? Why are you waving these palm branches? What a weird tradition. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. Stop it. He doesn't do that. He receives it. Because he's receiving the fact, yes, I am king. Yes, I am a warrior. And yet, as soon as they finish waving, their eyes descend down. And they see that he's not riding a steed. He's riding a donkey. And not just a donkey. The foal of a donkey. A dinky donkey. Jesus is coming into the city riding a dinky donkey, a hobbit horse. That's what Jesus is riding in on. And so the visual is contradictory. Him? Jesus is coming in at eye level. He's not like way up here where you're looking like, look at the glory and the majesty of our Rambo warrior who's going to take down Rome, man. He's going to take him down. They're like, it's you on that. And it's like it, Jesus went to the petting zoo or something. I mean, like the, the pony rides have come through town. And it's like, it's this radical, massively converse picture that's happening. And this is what Jesus is saying in that. On one hand, they're saying to him, we need someone powerful. We are against the world's superpower right now. Rome has got us. We, Rome has got, their king is not just a president. He's not just a dude that people follow the lead of. They think he's God. And that offends every fiber of us. And they are occupying every street of our town. We need someone who's powerful. And Jesus is like, you know what? I'm going to receive that. You're not going to get more powerful than God. I am God. And yet, if all you're looking for is someone who's powerful, you have someone who's high and lifted up and completely distant from you, which sometimes you need that. But if I'm disconnected and distant from you, I can't relate to you. I'm not only one of, I'm not, I'm not just trying to relate to the people or be one of the people. I'm going to become one of the people. Jesus was all God and all man. He humbled himself to the point of being born as a baby. You don't get more vulnerable than that. They're looking for ultimate power. Jesus had it. You don't get more vulnerable than a baby. Jesus grew up from a baby. All God, all man. Radically challenging. You're looking for a king, but you're looking for a different kind of king if you're just trying to figure out how to solve 30 A.D., problems. You need a deeper hope than that because you have a deeper issue than that. 
They're, they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, you know, I, I, I need somebody who's powerful enough to deal with the fact that we, our lives, our very lives are at stake here. People go missing. If you confront the Roman Empire, people will go missing. It's like the mob. It's the mafia. And yet it's, it's structural. It's, it's systematic and it's institutionalized. We need someone who can confront the death that we're experiencing. And Jesus is like, awesome, I'm all about that. But I'm going to do something greater because I'm not going to simply take a sword to the Roman Empire. I'm going to battle death itself by dying. I'm going to let death kill me so that I can beat death. Radically different political person than the, the people we're looking for. Radically different king than the people we're anticipating. Jesus challenged their shallow hope in a political solution their spiritual problem. And if you thought that was bold, and that was bold, I and mean, people were like, like, a lot of people were freaking out. Wait till he gets into the city. He gets into the city, and then all of a sudden we see that he is actually challenging not only the, the political hope, but the religious hope, which if you're the Messiah, you don't think that that's something that you'd be all about. Take a look at the following passages. Let's go ahead and read, starting in verse 11. And there's something in verse 11 that I never really took note of until this study. It's very easy to swim right past it and miss something that's happening here. Verse 11. We're going to go to 11, then we're going to jump on over to 15. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple courts. He looked around at everything. But since it was always, already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Okay, so this massive triumphal parade, right? He gets into the temple courts. Does he stay there for a long time? No, why? Because it's late. It's late, there's not a lot of people around. Not a lot of people around. He's not able to make the bold move and the bold proclamation he wants to, but on top of that, he's observing what's happening in the temple court. What is he seeing? He sees it, and it sets the table for how he engages the temple courts the next time he goes in. He leaves, goes back up that mountain, back up to his friend's house in Bethany, Bethpage, and comes back to Jerusalem the next day. Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, this is the next day, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise to the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers. Growing up, I thought that Jesus' beef with what they were doing was that they were selling stuff in church. Like, I'm like, oh, okay, that's the bad thing. That wasn't the bad thing. It was where they were doing it. I mean, they were selling stuff for sacrifice. It was part of the system. And some people think that, you know, maybe they were, they were shortchanging people or cheating people. That could have been part of the process. But the thing that got Jesus upset was where they were doing it. See, the interesting thing is that, that Jesus, Jesus starts to flip over furniture in the temple and you can't understand how absolutely offensive that move was until you realize how important the temple was to his tribe of people, the Hebrew people, the Jewish people. It starts with the fact that there's something about the presence of God, the holiness of God, the absolute separation from God that we actually had a par participation in, in the garden, that Adam and Eve were in a place where shalom was there. And shalom is not just peace like there's no wars going on. Shalom is like, like the absence of anxiety and stress and strife because there's no issues between you and God, there's no issues between you and other people, and there's no issues with you and, and creation itself, your body, the world around you. Everything is shalom. It's peaceful 
And it's awesome and it's full. It's fulfilled in the presence of God. And the garden was all about that. Then all of a sudden, Adam and Eve decide to elevate their own will over God's. They started to value their identity separated from God. And that broke creation. And it broke the fact that they were able to experience creation. And as they're banished from the garden, we have, and I don't know if this is symbolic or if it's literal, but we have this, this thing where they look back and they see this fiery sword basically guarding the way back into the garden, the place where the presence of God was experienced. And we know that the presence of God is everywhere. God is everywhere. He's, he's omnipresent. However, there is something about that experience that they were no longer able to get through. The sword barred the dis- you, You're going to die trying to get back into that. There's no possible way. Death itself is separating you from the presence of God. And for anyone that thinks it's not a big, like, why, why was it such a big deal? They just chose to disobey God. Like, everybody does that. And they're not, like, horrible people, Right? Until you realize that the holiness of God and the way that God created us was so specifically tuned to that relationship of holiness that any break in that separated by Grand Canyons apart, universes apart, galaxies apart, the ability to reconnect. Tim Keller puts it this way. Turning from God has had dreadful consequences. Building our lives on other things, on power, on status, acclaim, family, Race, nationality has caused conflicts, wars, violence, disease, and death. We've trampled one another. We've trampled on this earth. That means that it's not enough just to say, sorry, may I please get back into the presence of God. He continues, if you've been the victim of a heinous crime, and some people in this room have been the victim of a heinous crime, if you've suffered violence and the perpetrator or even the judge says, sorry, can't we just let it go? You would say, no, that would be an injustice. Your refusal would rightly have nothing to do with bitterness or vengeance. If you've been badly wronged, you know that saying sorry is not enough. Something else is required. Some kind of payment must be made to put things right. Here's the amazing thing about the Old Testament. We have in the Old Testament, God not coming to the end of Genesis 3 and saying, and that was the, that's it. Like, forget humanity. I'm done. I'm going to create a, a better like, tri- a species of people that can actually obey me. God so desperately wanted us to experience his presence that you see him making these allowances in the Old Testament. First with the tabernacle. The tabernacle was this tent as they're, as they're wandering around, a place where they can know they can meet with God. But again, they've done wrong stuff. And they can't like, just make up for that by trying to be a better person, be a better citizen, be a better Hebrew. They had, something, they had broken this holiness with God. Something had to be sacrificed. Something had to, something had to die. And so God prescribes this, this system for people to know how they can connect with God. It's the book of Leviticus. And if you've never read the book of Leviticus, read it around Halloween. It is gory. It is the, one of the goriest books in the Bible. But all it is is God saying, you don't understand the depth of the distance between us. And you need to see how this has brought death into the world. Your decision, as minute as you thought it was when you did it, brought death and distance. And so here's a prescribed way. So something would be sacrificed in front of the tent of meeting. Because in that tent of meeting was only where the priest would go. And that was where God w- would meet with, with Aaron, with, with Moses. This is something where, where there, there was a connection with God. The presence of God was there. A sacrifice had to be made for this person to walk away and say, I know that I did wrong. I know that it's stuff against God, but God tells me that now my, my sin is covered. At the end of the day, I got to say it's not taken care of. It's like not completely. It's like 
that dove, that lamb didn't do anything. Did it really eradicate all the wrong that I did when I cheated on my wife, when I lied to my friend? Did it really do that? And they had this nagging reality that it it wasn't. But that didn't stop them from God really wanting to have a place where they could know that they could walk away at peace with God. They could experience a percentage of that shalom. And the temple was just basically a a better architectural structure of the tabernacle. Now, when Jesus gets to the temple, when when it first talks about him showing up, it says that he gets to the temple courts. And that's important for us to know. Because what would he, where Jesus would first walk in, if he just walked in and observed and then walked out, he's walking into the, 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 the actual area where the Gentiles were allowed to come and pray. So it was like the court of the Gentiles. If you were a Gentile, you know, you're not Jewish, born, whatever, this is the only place you could go. In fact, um, it was the court, when Jesus talks about it, I mean, it's the court of uh, the nations, which is, comes from the word ethnos or eth- ethne, which is the, comes from the word ethnos, which means nations or other ethnic groups. This is where the foreigners would come and pray. Um, and they were instructed not to go beyond that point. And archaeologists have actually discovered the signs. And the signs say this, no outsider shall enter the protective enclosure around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will only have himself to blame for the ensuing death. So if you're a Gentile, like most of us are, This is all you could go. This is as far as you can go. Beyond this is where Jewish women could go, into the women's courts. Beyond that is is where the men, Jewish men, could go. Beyond that was was an interior wall space where the priests could go. And then there was like the the altar where sacrifices were made. This is Passover week, and so tons of, 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 of things are being sacrificed. And then beyond that was the Holy of Holies, God's presence himself divided by this massive curtain. So Jesus shows up. And he sees what's happening. What's ended up happening is the place where Gentiles are supposed to be praying, the place that God reserved for a place for the, for the nations, the foreigners to meet with God, has turned into a market where people are selling the sacrifices to be sacrificed over there. Josephus, the historian, said that 200, up to 255,000 animals were purchased for sacrifice during the week of Passover. So if you can just imagine the chaos and the noise and the bartering of people selling stuff and the poop everywhere and you're and now all of a sudden this massive chaos and everything else and Jesus is watching all this chaos and maybe over in the corner you see that one foreigner, that non-Jewish person in the midst of the chaos and the poop and the animals and the bartering trying to connect with God because this is a place that he set apart for them, that they would not be outside, they could still connect with him. Sets the table for Jesus walking in the next day and flipping over the tables. They've occupied the space set apart for the foreigners to worship God, and they've occupied it with their own tables. They've pigeonholed them out, and they've made it a place of absolute insanity. And Jesus does something so offensive because he's taking these pagans, these these non-Jewish people who are connecting with the one true God and saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm taking this dividing wall, which was called the Sorig. This is gone And actually, as you see Paul talking, when he says that in Christ, because of Christ, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. It's like these, they're gone, they're gone. I'm bringing you right over here to the altar because you know what? You're no longer going to be sacrificing anything to get close to the presence of God. I'm going to be the sacrifice. Because I'm the sacrifice, I'm bringing you all over here. And this curtain, this is a spoiler alert for next week, this curtain is going to rip. And the Holy of Holies is not going to be enclosed in some building the prophets in the Old Testament said that, that there'd be a day where the holiness of God would spread like waters, like flood waters all across the earth 
so that the entire earth becomes the holy of holies. The presence of God is something that the people were so offended because you're taking something that helped us keep the Gentiles out and you've allowed them to come close. There was an urban legend that the Messiah, when he came, would actually eradicate all of the foreigners out of the temple. That his job, his part of his job description was to get rid of them so it could just be us Jewish people. And yet Jesus, Messiah, doesn't cleanse the temple of the Gentiles. He makes way to bring them in. But the even more subversive, more, more, more offensive thing is that Jesus is destroying their ability to connect with the presence of God. The thing that Leviticus prescribed. Like, how dare you do this? You're destroy- I want to have, I want to be close to the presence of God. I want to know that God, the shalom of God is with me. And you've destroyed that. You've taken away our ability to sell sacrifices. If there's no sacrifice, how do I get close to God? If nothing dies, how do I experience the sacrifice of God? How do I experience the presence of God? Within one week, within days of that offensive reality that Jesus boldly put right in front of their face, they would have their answer to the way that God intended to make a way for them to come close. That they would no longer be sacrificing anything else. He would be the sacrifice. The third bold move. Not only do we see the political and the religious hope being challenged, but he challenges something even more close to home because there's people that love what Jesus did by challenging the political hope. Love what Jesus did by rearranging the table and showing us that our our religious hope is only in him as the sacrifice on the cross. This one gets far more personal. And this this is the bizarre part where we're just like going, what in the world are you doing here, Jesus? And if you've ever read this in the Bible, you might have just skipped over it or read through it really, really quick because you can't explain away Jesus' bizarre actions in this. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Verse 12 of chapter 11. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Anyone in here ever been hungry and you just really want something to eat? Two people. Jesus relates to you too. All right. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. All right, so far, so good. You're in the first century. You're like hungry, and you, you've trained your eyes to know what plants and trees are edible, that they have fruit on them. And so like, and you know what seasons that, that it's time to eat and stuff? So you're like, boom, fig tree. I'm hungry. That's going to be my answer. So far, so good. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Now, this is where you or I would naturally go, <laughs> Bummer. I totally forgot this isn't the season for figs. This is the springtime. It's not going to be till like summertime that there's going to be figs that are going to be ripe enough to eat on this thing. Then he said to the tree, like you do, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Now here's the thing. If you ever saw somebody yelling at a tree, take a couple steps back. Because that's crazy. And, if you, and just in case anyone thought, well, maybe they misunderstood. Maybe they didn't see it. Maybe it was just one person that saw it. Mark records, and his disciples heard him say it. And then they move on. No explanation. Nothing. But the first century readers would understand. The, the fig tree was, was a symbol. So Israel's got lots of symbols that symbolize them. They've got the pomegranate. If you go over there today, you'll find pomegranate, ceramic pomegranates, and the fig tree. Fig tree is, is a symbol of Israel. And so the, the, tree, the tree is not just a tree. When Jesus is, is chewing it out, he's chewing out the symbol for the nation itself. And here's the other weird thing. 
Because I always had an issue with that. Why is, like, why is Jesus acting surprised that it doesn't have fruit? It's not the time when you would have fruit. Or is it? The fig tree in Israel is really, really trippy. You've got this thing where in the springtime when the leaves come out, there's no figs on there yet. But all along the branches are these no- nodules, these like little nodes. And, and the nodes are there. And people who are walking and traveling, what they would do is in springtime, if you saw a fig tree in leaf, you would know no figs are going to be there, but there's like trail mix all along the branches that I could pick and eat. It's edible. It's good. You're super hangry in the day. You find a fig tree in the springtime, no problem. The only time you would come across a fig tree that was in leaf but had nothing on the branches was in situations where that fig tree was sick, where there was decay on the inner parts of the tree itself. And Jesus is like, this is you. You want to know why I'm angry? You know why I'm freaking out? I mean, you just saw me flip over a bunch of like furniture in, in one of the, the, the most sacred place in our faith. But I'm yelling at a bush right now. I'm yelling at a branch. The reason I'm yelling at a branch is because of the fact that this is you. You have this picture of God bless us. And you look blessed. And you've got a house, you've got a family, you've got stuff. Everything's good. And yet the very thing that you need to be offering the people along the trail is not there. There's no fruit. Jesus isn't getting angry at the fact that God has blessed them. Jesus is getting angry at his people because Genesis 12 said, I'm going to bless you and you are going to be a blessing for all the nations. Jesus is taking the fact that they have zero fruit in the midst. Where does that leave us? You're here today. And a lot of people would say, that person, super religious. They don't even know about your life, but you're super religious because you showed up. Right on. Good for you. You look, and I look, like we've got things together. But showing up, or even saying that you're a Christian, isn't fruit. That's the leaves. Jesus is pointing out that oftentimes we could be the very people when the world is hungry around us for answers that have zero fruit to show them. Fruit shows up if you are a naturally angry person. And some of us are. We're just wired that way. Like we were like angry at two. You don't believe me? Go to the nursery. You'll find them. The future angry people. They're your kids. One of them was mine. Has your anger experienced the cooling effect of the forgiveness of Christ? The people who know that you're a hothead have seen something shift. You're someone who walks with doubt and shame and guilt. As the grace of God started to set in where you start to realize that Jesus has forgiven you, you could forgive yourself and you could actually be the type of person that's forgiving. Are you the type of person that walks with self-hate or self-centeredness? But the people in your world who's known how, how narcissistic you've been in your lifetime have seen things starting to revolve around are you just the same? You got the leaves, but there's no fruit. Last week I told uh, everyone about how um, we had a house fire and it's been crazy. And, and when people are asking us, how are you guys doing? We're like, we're really doing good. I mean, honestly, we're doing good. And, and people think we're delusional, but we're honestly doing good. But you could still be doing good and go, okay, this is going to be all right. And realize that the stresses of life start to produce in you 
the person that God doesn't want you to be, the worst version of yourself. My wife and I, we experienced this just a couple days ago. We're driving the car, it's just us, and just the amount of like questions that we have to answer with the insurance company or things we've got to figure out here and there, all of a sudden these little tiny stressors are coming up like in our life, and we just started to lay into each other and just chewing each other out. And like, I'm sitting there and I'm driving. I'm like, I'm gonna have a stroke. Like in my head, I'm like, I'm like just things are like, the, the heartbeat in your head is beating so loud. And then we had a chance to apologize to each other the next day. And the thing that's so cool is this. We came to a point of saying, you know what? We're gonna probably be displaced out of our house for nine months. And that sounds like a long time because it is a long time. That doesn't bother me. But if this much into that journey is producing this in between us, that can't be. Nine months is going to produce bitter, angry people who will do and say things that we can never erase if we let it. I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor. Where's the fruit? We made the decision to say, let's let the next nine months be the training ground that God actually uses all the stress and all the difficulty to condition our hearts to be more like Jesus at the end of that journey. As garbagey as it is, that the world around us can see not just the leaves, they can actually say, that, that is helpful. What bold moves does God want you to take? I want to challenge you this week. You've got a world of people that are hungry. They're desperate. They're desperate for um, bold moves that are actually going to lead to the living hope. And I want to just challenge you. Think about people you go to school with that don't know Jesus. Bring them here next week. People you work with, people you're in town with, bring them here next week. I want to share with them the, the most amazing living hope that I have ever experienced in my life. You have too. Show them more than the leaves. Show them the fruit as well. Let's stand for prayer.